Uh, let's just jump right into the text. Go ahead and put this on the screen, Miss Molly. This is Isaiah 35. More words of prophecy from uh, God's prophet, Isaiah. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, and the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground, bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. And it will be called the glory land. Wait, no, no, no. It doesn't say that. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. The word will is used 27 times in this chapter that I just read. Must be important. That's a lot of emphasis on the future. We've been listening to the voice of Isaiah in this Advent series. And he continues to cast a vision for a time of redemption. It's a word of hope and encouragement for a group of people whose future does not look merry and bright. It's been good to listen to the prophet Isaiah. It's always been an intimidating book of the Old Testament to me because it's big. Like there's a lot of prophecies that are recorded by Isaiah. But I learned this helpful tool that can help you kind of understand how it breaks down. Uh, pop quiz. How many books are in the Bible? Just say it out loud. 66. Uh, I saw some of you mouth the wrong words, but I won't point. <laughs> 66 books of the Bible. And uh, how many are in the Old Testament? 39. And that makes how many in the New Testament? 27. I learned this as a kid. This is drilled into my brain. 66 books, 39, and then 27. The Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible, up, everything up until the time of Jesus. And then the New Testament, 27 books, uh, the letters of the early church and the Gospels and if you didn't know that, now you know. Well, the book of Isaiah is broken down in a similar way. There are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. And the first 39 chapters are prophecies that Isaiah gave while Israel was still in Jerusalem, before they were taken over. And then the remaining 27 chapters are from a time when they were in exile. It's a helpful way to kind of go, oh, it's like the Bible. Isaiah is sort of like a little mini Bible breakdown. And the passage we just listened to was Isaiah chapter 35, which means that it's in the, the first part of Isaiah while they're still in Jerusalem. But it's at the end of the first part, which means that the writing was already on the wall. 
and the, the nations that were surrounding Israel were kind of creeping in. There was a concern, and, and they were right to be concerned because things were going to go south pretty quick. And so this word of encouragement rings out as a reminder to people who are not necessarily going to get everything that they want for Christmas, so to speak. It's a poem about reversals. It's about revival. Here Isaiah say, there's these dry lands, well, they're going to be made alive again. There are these dead things, just hopeless things with no life in them. They're going to be revived. They're going to be brought back to life. It's a poem about healing. What we sang in the, we declare that the kingdom of God is here. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame. It says, we'll leap like a deer. What a beautiful image for people who had kind of said, this is my life now. This is, this is what I live without. Uh-uh. There's a reversal here that Isaiah tells us about. And it's a poem about peace and safety and a clear path or a, a highway for the righteous to travel on without hindrance so that they can move closer and closer to their God in joyful worship, approaching God's place. It says your God will come and rescue you. He will bring revival and restoration and salvation. Again, 27 times we hear the word will in Isaiah 35. But of course, it raises the question, when? Because the days keep passing, and these enemies, they keep getting closer and closer, and we are not seeing it. We sure could use that salvation now. We want that way of the righteous. We want to see things change, but we're not there yet. When I was, uh, I think in high school, I went to the movie theater, and I saw a movie called Cast Away, starring Tom Hanks. You, got, you might remember this movie. His plane crashes, and he's marooned on this island, and he has to survive. This is the one with the, he makes friends with the volleyball, Wilson. Um, it's a really good movie. I remember seeing it in the theater, because the theater was packed, and everybody was excited about this movie. You watch this movie about a guy trying to make fire, and he's, he's wondering if he's going to be rescued. He's waiting, he's waiting, and nothing is happening. So he has to do the best that he can. And there's this scene in the middle of the movie. There's a transition where something happens, and then it fades to black. And then the very next scene is a title that appears on the screen, and it says, four years later. And I remember in the theater, everybody went, oh. Like you could hear everybody just gasping and going, wow. Because he's only been there for a few days, and he, he figured out how to make fire, and we celebrated with him, and we're just like, surely, like, they're looking for him. There's a transponder, and his rescue is on its way. And then four years later, we go, oh, that is such a long time. And it is. Isaiah was written over 700 years before the time of Jesus. It was written in the 8th century B.C. God's people were called to wait and to hold on to this vision. And if you thought four years for Tom Hanks was a long time, imagine having to wait that long. We get impatient when it takes Leah and Lucy over five minutes to pass out all the communion cups. We get impatient when our DoorDash order doesn't show up within the prescribed 30 minutes. Where's this thing? Oh, man, it's coming out of your tip, buddy. We have to admit, we are a culture that does not do well with waiting. We are ill-equipped for patience and trust in God's timing. So put yourself in the shoes of the people in the first century. Now this is the time of Jesus. Around Galilee. These are faithful Jews who have been holding on to these visions of Isaiah. They've been saying, yeah, okay, 
God will, God will, this will happen, but we're, we're wanting to know when. We're still hoping, but I don't know. It's been a long time. So imagine how you might feel when you start hearing reports like this. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, came to his own town. And some men brought to him a paralyzed man laying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow, he's blaspheming. But knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man, a term that Jesus uses to describe himself, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And then the man got up and went home. The most exciting part of the story is the most boring sentence. Yeah, he got up. He went home. This is amazing. He hasn't been able to walk. He's paralyzed. Why don't you just get up and go home? He got up and he went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. And they praised God who had given such authority to man. Later on in chapter 9 of the Gospel of Matthew, it says, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind man came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. And then he touched their eyes, and he said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this? But they went out, and they spread the news about him all over that region. I would imagine they could not do that. Then while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Could it be? I mean, this is amazing on its own that someone is able to do this. And the Pharisees are like, ah, this has got to be from the devil. And Jesus is like, are you blind? This is, this is from God. This is, this is what's going on here. But the people of Israel, their memories kicked in and they remembered the prophecies of Isaiah. They're like, oh, all those wills. This will happen. The blind will see and the lame will leap like a deer. Or just get up there, pick up their mat and go home. Whatever. I mean, that's still pretty awesome. Can it be? Can it possibly be that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, this guy that we know, we know his parents, we know his family. Could he be the Messiah? Is he the one that we have been waiting for all this time? Even John the Baptist wasn't 100% sure. And yet maybe they remembered those strange incidents around the birth of John and around the birth of Jesus that we hear a lot at Christmas time, but that may have reminded them like, oh, this is that. But still there's, there's doubt there and we see this in the text. Israel knows, and you and I may have experienced, that even if you have an amazing, impactful encounter with God that gives you no doubt about what God is doing, that he's alive and that he's active in the world and in your life, if time goes by, you tend to forget. You tend to lose that hope. And maybe that's what happened with John the Baptist here. We don't know. But it seemed like these prophecies were being fulfilled in Jesus. It seemed like it's true. He is the Messiah. But 
Surely, it can't be Jesus. He's from our town. We know him. We know this guy. It reminds me of one of my favorite Christmas movies, The Santa Claus. We watched this with our family over this past week. Uh, it's starring Tim Allen. This is back from the 90s, too. I was in remembering 90s movies mode this week, I suppose. But if you don't know the story, it's about an ordinary man who's having Christmas Eve with his son, and then somehow he becomes Santa Claus. And he, his beard starts to grow. He shaves, but like his hair turns white, and he gets a big Santa beard. He starts gaining all this weight, and he can't help it. And these elves start checking in with him and making preparations for, for Christmas Day. And these reindeer start following him around. And all the signs are there. Like, he, he's having a hard time believing it himself. And the people around him are like, why are you dressing like Santa Claus? This is, this is mental. He's like, I am Santa Claus. And his young son, Charlie, believes him. But everybody else around him, they're like, this can't be, it can't be the Santa Claus. We know you. You're this guy. You're not that guy. I think the same thing was at work in the life of Jesus. It seems like all the signs are there. Like, this is, should we celebrate? Is this for real? But no, surely this can't be the real Messiah. And so John sends his people to ask, like, let's, let's find out. Matthew 11, when John, who was in prison, long story, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you see, uh, what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. The birth of Jesus is the arrival of the Messiah. It's the season of joy and of celebration. The, the realization that like, yes, this is the one we've been waiting for. Yes, the Messiah has come, but it's so much more than that. We were expecting a leader. We were expecting power. We were expecting uh, uh, someone to grab a sword and to lead us in battle. And the Messiah came, but the Messiah wasn't just another king. The Messiah was God in the flesh. As the song says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It's that moment when the waiting is starting to come to an end. It's like when you've been waiting for someone that you love to arrive, and then you get that phone call that says, hey, the plane just landed. We're not here yet, but we're almost here. And you go, yes, okay. And you get in the car, and you fake preparations, or you, you change the sheets in the guest bedrooms, and you just, you, oh, they're not, they're not here yet, but you know they're on their way. And not like far on the way, but close on the way. That's what we join in with Israel in doing as we anticipate the celebration of the coming of God in the flesh. We get ready. We are waiting, but it's an active waiting. We are actively making preparations. And along with Israel, we are a people who are called to believe and participate in the restorative work that God is doing and that God still will do. We believe that Jesus' arrival changed the world. We believe that physical and spiritual healing is available through Jesus Christ. We are a people of prayer. We believe that God can and is doing way more in our lives than we could possibly do. And we are 
people of Jesus the Messiah. We are the people who are on that way of holiness that Isaiah talked about. We are overcome by gladness and joy, and we are inviting others to come along with us and join us in living like Jesus, and in loving like Jesus, in serving like Jesus, in laying down our lives for the sake of others like Jesus. We're a people of hope. As we wait, we continue to move toward Isaiah's vision of God's restored world. That's something that we remind ourselves every year, every day. We're waiting, but it's not sad waiting. It's not a hopeless waiting. We wait with hope. We wait actively and joyfully and expectantly. This past summer, we had a lament service in July. You might remember this. We had all of our chairs in a circle for the month of July as we were exploring different types of prayers. And one kind of prayer that we focused on was the prayer of lament. We do this every once a year or every once in a while. Lament is the biblical language of crying out to God in our times of need. And together, this, this past summer, we wrote out our own laments in the, the biblical style. We, they included our complaints that we lifted up to God, just the things that are wrong in our lives, the things that are not right, the justices we want to see come about in the world around us. We learn from the language of lament that those are the things we should bring before God. We shouldn't just gripe about them on the side or become hopeless and say, ah, things will never change. But we say, God, do you see what we're seeing? And can you involve yourself in this situation? The Bible shows us it's right to lift up these concerns before God and say, God can handle it. God cares. God is powerful enough to do something about it. And God hears these prayers of lament. And so we invited the congregation to write out the lament. Remember, we had posters up on the wall, and there was complaints over here. And then there were, uh, what you want God to do about it? God, intervene in this way. God, come to my aid. God, help the people I love. Hear my prayers. And then over here, we had a poster that said, expressions of trust. Because laments don't end with a, ah, don't end in anger or frustration with God. We put our frustrations out there, especially if they're there. we got to be honest with God. But it's this movement of pain and hurt and cries and frustration to, and yet I will trust you, Lord. I will still trust in your unfailing love. I will remember your track record of faithfulness, and I will yet praise you. That's what we did in July. And uh, you guys wrote out expressions of love and trust, and we lifted them up before the Lord together. And I want to end the message this morning by giving you an opportunity to hear these messages of love and trust that people from this congregation wrote out and they posted up on the wall. I want you to hear them read aloud and I want to invite you to pray them along with our congregation. Together we'll lift them before the God who sent Jesus to begin the work of restoring and perfecting God's creation. These are our prayers of hope and of trust. So I want to invite Bill and Connie to uh, voice these prayers now and then after that, uh, the praise team will come up here and lead us in our final song. I trust you to do what is in your will. Regardless of how hostile our society becomes to your name, I will yet praise you in word and deed. I will trust you to make things right. Lord, I love you and trust you with all my heart. I have faith that your will will be done and my questions will be answered. I love you, O oh Lord, 
Thank you, Lord, for each and every moment that you have given me, every step, every breath. I know that you are working in our lives. I trust you. We trust in you and your plans for us all and your work at Tri-Valley. Lord, please touch the hearts of my children. Bring them back to you. Amen. Whatever happens, I know you are in control. Let what you want to happen, happen. If the mountains are moved into the sea and everything I know crumbles, you are good. You are, were, and will be. I trust you. You have called me to be your beloved. Your promise is for me. I trust your timing. All praise to you. You will do what is best. Thank you, Lord, that we can bring to you all that is on our hearts. Thank you. Praise forever. Thank you, Lord, for all the blessings you have given me throughout my life. I have truly been blessed. You are good. You are loving. You are king. Lord, I know you love all of your creation, especially your children. I trust that you were already doing your best to reach suffering youth, including me. Dear Lord, when prayer answers seem to be no, let me trust that you know what's best for me, and I know you love me. Lord, my God, holy and gracious, you listen. You answer when we pray. Thank you. I trust you, God. I know you are taking care of me and helping me with the laments I have given over to you. I love you. You have a plan. We trust in that plan. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Rapha. I know you care more than I do, and you are patient and must win. Have mercy on us when you do. I know that in fact, what you, that's what you promised. Please do so. I know you will. Lord, you are holy and faithful. I trust you to provide restoration and salvation. I trust you to guide me to overcome temptation and sin. Lord, you are our king. No matter what, I will never stop praising you for all my blessings and for saving me. Amen.